Welcome to the first episode. Today, our episode is called In the Eyes of Amy Marie. Amy is from the USA. She is a storyteller, a writer, and she has this incredible passion for women's empowerment. She has worked her way through incredible projects and at the moment is working up for girls' local leadership. She is a woman that I not only admire, but she is full of life, extremely caring, and she is not afraid of doing what is right. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you work in? <laughs> yes. So thank you for having me. Um, obviously, my name is Amy. I go by Amy Marie. And right now, I currently work with the nonprofit for Girls Global Leadership as a volunteer co-author of the book we're working on for the Muscles of Empowerment. And then I work with an awesome group of women um, called Worldwide Women that's kind of an offshoot of Four Girls Global Leadership. And we run an Instagram page together where we highlight the stories of women and girls around the world that are empowering themselves and their community through using their voice and choice. So um, yeah, it's a bit about what I do. I absolutely love working with them and yeah. <laughs> so how did you get interested into women empowerment? Um, so I initially got into it when I met Jen In at a event at the International Peace and Security Institute in DC. So I was actually there for a completely different reason. Um, I was there as I had studied a bit on the country that they were talking about and um, was looking for a job at the Institute, to be honest. Um, I was new to DC. I was working as an AmeriCorps VISTA, which is our kind of volunteer-based program. And while it was something I loved, I wasn't really, it wasn't a long-term goal. Um, and the community I was serving no longer really needed my services. They had excelled at the work. And so I was job hunting. But um, Jen was there and she asked an amazing, poignant question about women's role in preserving culture in this country. and it blew me away. So I went up to speak to her. I was super awkward and nervous and scared and had no clue what I was doing. Um, <laughs> Nobody ever does. Exactly. I was like, oh gosh, this is, I'm so embarrassed. Like she's going to think I'm this little girl coming up to her, begging her to like, let me be a part of what she's doing. But amazingly, it seemed to work. <laughs> she emailed, her team reached out to me and it was just like a right place, right time meeting. I was at a crossroads in my career. I didn't quite know where I fit. I was still dealing with a lot from my past. Um, and even though I felt empowered through my education, I hadn't really considered what empowerment looked like in my life or in anyone else's or why it was important. So I started working with her actually to do a survey of women's empowerment in Afghanistan, uh, Southwest Asia region. And um, that ended up kind of taking a back seat just due to different technical difficulties. And instead, we started writing a book. She had kind of realized as I was working on the survey that I really loved writing. And it was kind of the driving force throughout my entire career. Um, I just didn't realize it. I realized I loved what I did, not because of the career, but because of the responsibilities. I was a writer. Um, so she realized that, wow, she can tell stories. And I was like, I didn't know that about myself either. So <laughs> um, she's like, we should write this book together. And I was like, oh, well, okay, that sounds awesome. Um, 
But what I didn't realize is that going through that process, I was going to find my voice as a storyteller and also find my own empowerment in it um, and understand the importance of why these stories mattered, why providing them a space and holding that space as sacred was so important. It completely changed my outlook. Um, with a master's in diplomacy, I had thought I was going to go into the nonprofit world. I was going to be a research statistician and be very clinical and in this box that really wasn't made. Like more formal. Yeah, very formal, what you're very doing. Um, structured. And it, I didn't fit really well. So um, this nonprofit volunteer-based role, active love is what Jen calls it, it really expanded my mind and my horizons. And that was kind of the launching point for getting involved. Um, I, that concept of everything in your life leads you to that point is so true. I was, my past experiences, my childhood, what I had seen in my bachelor's degree and internships, working for the kind of more government side, prepared me for understanding why women's empowerment was so important and kind of opened my mind to that, which was awesome. And I think it's so amazing that you're helping narrating the stories of these women that are not just from the U.S., but from everywhere in the world. Yeah. So what is it, how do you see that these stories impact others? Like, why is it important for us to share our own story? So these stories matter because they show the diversity of our voices. They show that even if we don't understand one another, the empathy that we create by telling our stories, the kind of opening that we create matters. So often our society hides the stories. We want the pretty polished, perfected, beautiful outside. We want everything to look wonderful. We want to hear the good news stories. And so, so many people struggle in silence because of that. The girls that we highlight are from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. They cover all seven continents. They cover the main issues that women and girls struggle with from child marriage to female genitalia mutilation to domestic violence and violence against women and girls. Issues that so often get thrown under the rug or kind of covered up as, oh, these are just symptoms. And it's so important to tell their stories because it addresses the root cause. So domestic violence, child marriage, all of these are symptoms of a power imbalance where the male and female dynamics aren't balanced and where this power imbalance is rooted in a system of fear. So this fear-based monologue that we are so often fed about our society, about one another, this scarcity mindset is being challenged by these stories. It's showing that there's a different way to live and by empowering ourselves and those around us, we are transforming that fear into a sense of love and compassion, empathy, a new sense of living or a new style of living that incorporates everyone's story regardless of understanding because you don't need to understand someone to empathize with them. You don't need to agree with their opinion. That's so true. But they need to hear it. So, um, yeah, that's why it's important. It's, it's so vital. And I mean, after all, how do you know whose opinion is valid or, you know, which one is right or which one is wrong? And I think that's something that falls into this, this thing that you said. You don't need to understand someone else to be able to empathize with them. Yes, and I think... The girls and women that this book tells a story about, and really anyone that steps up to tell their story, each one's unique. 
each one comes with different trials and tribulations and it dispels the myth that your struggle doesn't matter or that so for me writing this book uh, at the very beginning I definitely felt like I had a severe case of imposter syndrome <laughs> how am I good enough to be writing this book how am I how does my story matter that I'm gifted with this just immense responsibility to tell their stories. And as I was telling their stories also, I felt myself discrediting my own story. And I had to grapple with that because each of their stories are so unique and so different. Each of the struggles they face, they're real for them. The struggles they face, the pain they feel is intense and it matters. And it's still valid even if someone else says, my story also has struggle, my story also has pain. They're allowed to coexist side by side without competing with one another or doing our society thing of like where we one up of, oh yeah, I'm sorry your story sucks, but this is what happened to me. And I think that's something that happens so much in today's society. People are often not allowed to feel, not allowed to hurt or struggle because often what is said is you could be worse. You know, there's people, for example, who don't have anything to it or there's people who are in a war zone you're fine you're privileged your story doesn't matter so your voice doesn't matter correct and i think we've gotten bad about that as a society of trying to to put qualifiers where qualifiers aren't needed women's empowerment to me is it's not about a qualifier it's not about what has happened to you it's about how you take what has happened in your life and you use it and to create your voice. Each of us has a very unique voice. And if we are to be empowered, we need to understand how to curate our stories in a way that enables our voices to help us make the choices in life that are so often taken away from us without us realizing. Empowerment is about understanding yourself and not only understanding yourself, but accepting yourself as you are, and then using that as a launching board to create change in your life and in the lives of those around you. Something that I think has gotten lost in the current parent empowerment kind of rhetoric that we hear. And I think it's something people have to realize there's a power to vulnerability. There's a power to sharing your story just with the person you are beside with, with your neighbor. Like you don't need to have a platform to help others. You don't need to have this large follower base just in order to help anyone because often I find, find, for example, for me personally, that by sharing your experiences with someone, then you know they relate to. You know that they're going through the exact same thing you are. And it doesn't mean that even if it's small, it doesn't mean it's insignificant. It's quite the opposite. Yes. And I think that's what I'm so passionate about as well, because we have all seen the celebrities or the human rights activists that have very large platforms. And often we think, well, we don't have that large of a platform. My story doesn't matter. And that's as a storyteller, which if you would have asked me two years ago, three years ago, if I would be a storyteller, I probably would have laughed at you. It wasn't really like in my little life plan, you know, when you're 15 and you write out your life journey in a bullet point list and you're going to do A, B, C, and D, and then you'll achieve and succeed. That's not what it looked like for me, but... Um, as a storyteller now, and I really feel that heart calling for me, I want to tell the stories of everyday women and everyday girls that enable society and them to understand that even if they just tell their story, even if they just write it down, it matters. If they share it with their daughter, if they share it with their son, 
especially with their son, because we need to partner with men in this journey. Empowerment isn't just about women being empowered, but about an entire generation being empowered. So men and women together. So if they just share with their coworker, if they're comfortable, even if it's just a small segment of their story, that is so valuable because as humans, we have gone so far away from being vulnerable. What you said about vulnerability, it's so true. I, I struggle with being vulnerable, even as a storyteller. I love telling others. And then when you ask me, I'm like, ooh, you want me to tell you mine? I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> It's just like this funny thing, you know, that happens. Like when you have to talk about others, it's easier. Yes. It's easier to get other people's experiences out there. But when it's about oneself, mm -hmm. it's scary. At least for me, it terrifies me. How am I going to show the people all these things that in a way I've been taught that are weaknesses? How am I going to tell them about my struggles? How, how are they going to perceive me? That's the word. How are they going to perceive me? We have gotten so caught up in perception of really, it's not our job to control how they perceive us. They're going to perceive us as they will, regardless if we tell our story or not. I got a bit of a slap in, in the face the other day. So I've been working with a really close friend and career counselor. And he asked me what about my work with the nonprofit Core Girls Global, what attributes had been strengthened in myself? And I said my confidence. And he's like, oh, I don't really think that's a strength that's been created. I always thought you were confident. And I was like, what kind of face do people think? Like, what do they think when they see me? Like, what have I been pretending so hard? I am the most anxious and self-conscious human there probably is out there. And here this guy that I grew up around that has been mentoring me three-fourths of my life thinks that I'm this like badass confident human and my mom just sat there and laughed because she's like if they only knew she's like you literally break out in a cold sweat going on so she's like they don't know and I was like yeah like I have to she's like you're so good at putting up a face oh thanks <laughs> and you know something this is really funny because when I was in sixth grade you know like around 11 or 12 I got into model UN and debates and there's a lot of public speaking there and I was terrified like every single time I have to go and I loved it. I would be scared to death, like I could feel my voice shaking, but people wouldn't notice. And it, it was this act that I was putting up like, okay, maybe if I pretend to be confident, if I pretend to believe in what I say, people will follow too. So it's just like what we were talking about, fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, and I think... And in a way it's not faking. If you are confident, you are confident. Yeah, in some sense you are confident. And in the other sense, you're completely terrified that people are going to think you're a fraud or that you're not good enough or how are they going to perceive your story? Are they going to think that you're nothing? For me, I was so good at faking it because as a child, I had to. Like if I wanted to live, I needed to fake it. I needed to be perfect and good and always on point and always have it together. And I couldn't be weak because the second I was weak, someone would get hurt. And I didn't realize how much as an adult that kept me from telling my story about it or it kept me from being vulnerable or real or until he said that and I was like, you have no idea. I did that to survive. I did that to get to where I am today. So for him, his confidence, I guess, idea of confidence came from the fact that at like 13, I went up against my school board advocating that they needed to let me go to high or go to college while in high school and give back the money that they got from the state that they gave to the sports team, denying kids in my school from getting a college education for free. 
because I knew if I didn't do that, I wouldn't go to college. So it wasn't about confidence. Apparently, he thought I was miraculously confident for this or something, and I was like, <laughs> I was shaking. I was 13. I was scrawny. I was scared. I was like, they are going to hate me and laugh at me and say no. But <laughs> I had to do it because it was necessary, not because I was comfortable. Exactly, because you had no other choice. You you wanted something and you needed it. Yeah. And, and I, that was the only way to get it. Definitely. And I felt for me, when I do something and apparently I portray confidence, it's not about me. It's that I feel passionate about it for other people. So like, I needed that education and so did everyone in my community because where I grew up was super impoverished. Kids going to college, you had to be from the upper middle class in my area. And most of them had to work while they went to college and several of them had, would have had to quit college because they didn't have the finances to keep going or they would get out of college with so much student loan debt, they would be crippled going forward with anything else. And so like that was so important for me and I had become so good at portraying that face that it didn't phase me. So yeah, I think, I think as a society, we've gotten too comfortable with that perception that we give out to other people or that fake reality. And that's why these stories of ordinary women breaking through that barrier and letting their voice be heard and being real about their struggles and being honest about what it took to get to where they are. And even at quote unquote, their pinnacle moment of empowerment, where they did such an amazing force of change in their community, that they still struggle with the same issues, that there are still barriers in their way that you just don't reach this aha moment of empowerment and then everything falls in place. Like, yes, there's empowerment and you are empowered and you told your story and you let your voice be heard and yet you are still going to face struggles and yet things still are gonna be hard and you're still going to struggle with imposter syndrome. You're still gonna struggle with some of the same factors and forces and obstacles that you faced while you were struggling to become empowered. So I don't know, that's why it's so important. And I think you said something very important, which is you have to pretend to have it all together. You have to be perfect. You have to give up this appearance that I think we are allowed. Like, we don't need anyone to give us permission to be human. Like, we don't have to be perfect. Humans are not meant to be perfect. We're meant to be messy. We're meant to make mistakes, figure out our own way, experiment. And being... And by telling these stories of these women, you're actually giving other people permission in a way to share their mistakes, to share their vulnerability and what they would think are weaknesses when in reality it's a strength. Correct. Yeah. And also to be real that none of us are black or white. None of us are good or bad. We are all, we all have the propensity for good in us and also the propensity for evil in us. And that it coexists sometimes, that we do things with good intentions sometimes that don't turn out great. Or that we are both confident and anxious. We are both empowered and disempowered at times at our own by ourselves. Or we are both, that we are just beings rather than, I love, Jenin has a statement that she says to me, I think quite often directly at me, but she says it in our group, um, that we are human beings, not human doings. And so by being a human being, you are allowed to have a complex reality, a complex system. That's what you were created to be. You weren't created to be this machine that always does perfect or is always achieving something. Sometimes it's okay to just sit and be, and be in the mess, be in the kind of, crazy middle of your life and that's okay yeah like it's okay if you don't have it figure it out it's okay if you don't know what step to take next 
which is something I think right now we're all dealing with. You know, right now we're recording in the middle of the pandemic, so it's okay not knowing what comes ne next. It's okay to be scared and not have any plans because after all, we don't need to have any plans. We need to just try to keep moving forward one way or another. Yeah, and I will say this pandemic, bringing that up, it has taken a lot out of me and I've, I feel this like need to do something. But one of the reasons why is that I know how lucky I am to be where I'm at in life now during this pandemic. If this pandemic would have happened 10 years ago, I could have been the news story. So in South Carolina right now, we've already had three homicide suicides where families that experienced domestic violence before or families that didn't have everything together, despite it looking like that on the outside, they were middle-class, pretty much poly polished families. Father couldn't handle it. He was most generally, they were already experiencing domestic violence and he killed either his wife or his girlfriend and all of the children and then himself. And that has taken such a hit on me. Like I want to go out and I want to do something, but I don't know what right now. Um, so I'm just still grinding through and telling stories, but it's that messy middle of now I'm waking up with nightmares of what could have been that that could have been my mother and I and I don't talk about that because where I come from in the Midwest of America you don't talk about that kind of thing it doesn't happen so I spent my entire childhood putting up this front really once my mother and I left that oh it never happened because people were so good at like telling me that it didn't happen that I just like thought it up in my head that we live this picture-perfect life that my father was this great man that everyone loved, that we were middle class, so obviously, and actually we were lower middle class if you want to classify it, but that we were just like this little perfect family and nothing happened and my mom and I moved in with my grandparents and everything was fine. Which if you ask anyone in my community is usually the story they'll tell you. They'll tell you like, I had a perfect childhood or yeah, or my mom just created a total hell for me by getting divorced, which is the least true part. <laughs> like she saved us and that I was so privileged. And I will acknowledge we were privileged when we left because we lived in the city. Like, if my mom would have left my father when we lived out in the country, he would have killed all of us. And that's why this time during the pandemic is so scary for me because I know that there are so many women where I grew up right now that they think they're suffering alone because no one has told them that what they're going through is wrong or no one has told them that they also have gone through something similar and they're stuck because they're out in the middle of nowhere, their family and friends, might call them crazy if they say that their husband beats them or emotionally abuses them. They might just not have the resources to leave right now. And so they're playing a game every day of how perfect can I look? How put together can I be? How carefully can I tread on the eggshells of my life to make sure I don't set off the trigger? And they're living in this world of perfectionism and constant self-critique and stress. And in one second, it could all be blown away just because no one has opened up and told their story. I guess this time is both an inspiring time of the pandemic of like reminding me why I tell this story, reminding me why I tell the stories of these women and girls, but also a crippling moment of just immense sorrow and fear of, wow, that could have been me. And understanding that the privilege I have, I'm so grateful for it, but also, at times it's so disempowering because you feel like because I, I'm out and I'm safe now and I'm, I'm a master's graduate, I never would have 
thought about that when I was younger. I just wanted to survive to the next day, that my story doesn't matter. And then I look at the news headlines right now and I was like, if only I had been brave enough when I was younger to talk about this with my friends or talk about this with my family. Um, my grandmother and my mom, they talked about it all the time because my grandmother was such a staunch supporter of my mom and I, and she understood what had happened and she knew that it was domestic violence and that it was emotional violence and that when we left, it was for our lives, not because my mom just didn't want to be married anymore. Um, but outside of that little safe hole, we never told our story. And when we did, we were so shut down that we just, it doesn't matter. And so I think it's both a, at times I feel guilty, but also a reminder of why now I understand. And all of that brought me to the point in my life where I understand the power of telling your story and the power of your voice. And I think that's something very important that you're mentioning that how you were shut down, like how people would have said, you have privilege, you're white, so these things don't happen, as you mentioned. Those things where you live are just not a thing. Shut up, don't say anything. When it happens, it happens everywhere. And I think if people only knew that resources need to go everywhere, not only when you would think it's more obvious, then these things would not maybe not stop happening, but it would redu reduce and impact a lot of people. Yeah, and honestly... It, like you said, it probably wouldn't stop it from happening, but it would stop it from happening in a vacuum by itself. It would stop it from happening silently. And I think that is the biggest threat we have right now on our society is that where we've become such a perfect, airbrushed, pretty, happy, all women are empowered, everything is great society, things are now just, they haven't gone away, but they are been forced to go into silence. And... And I believe it's also a really dangerous narrative, you know, because if you think about it, the inspiring stories that are usually in the media, it's, oh, he or she did it all by themselves. They got through it alone. When in reality, people need people. People need each other. We need support in order to actually thrive. And while there are people who actually manage to do this alone, I wonder how much easier must it good had it been if only they had support at that moment how much how many emotional trauma would they have not undergone by yeah i think that's a major point of you might be able to do it alone but you're going to walk away with such emotional scars that it's not worth it to do it alone you need that community around you you need the support my mom and i are actually working on a project that in essence our project is creating that safe space that we so desperately craved when we left just to talk, just to go and sit and drink a cup of coffee, read a book, write your story, tell your story, or just sit in a place that you feel whole and safe. Because right now in society, we lack that, at least where I'm at, we lack any space. In Ohio, it's a little bit better, but here in South Carolina where we moved, there's currently no um, domestic violence shelters. There are no My Sister's Keepers. Wow. There are no domestic violence hotlines. There are no domestic violence support groups. Or and because it doesn't happen, it according doesn't happen, to the media. Right. Or people have it in their minds that it only happens to the lower class, which absolutely aggravates me to no end because this isn't a poverty issue. This isn't a 
social status issue. This is a humanity issue, human issue that exists regardless of where you are. It's so before Seaboy 19, each of these issues, violence against women and girls, child marriage, female genitalia mutilation, all of these issues were pandemic. They were pandemics, but we just thought because of humans in our heads, we were like, oh, that only happens over there in a poor country. Or that doesn't happen here. And I have to say the pandemic, the Seaboy 19 pandemic has been the great equalizer of just like opening our eyes and being like, oh, this happens everywhere. Japan has had a rise in domestic violence calls. Sweden has had a rise in domestic violence calls. America's domestic violence calls have gone through the roof. London, skyrocketing. Why? Because all of a sudden everyone is forced into a small confined space together, most of times with their abusers, and there's no place to run and hide to. And all of a sudden the world's going, wow, we do have a problem. And we were talking about this the other day where I mentioned it's incredible, at least from my personal experience, that I grew up in northern Mexico. People look like me. We have a wealthier economic status in general. So we, we basically lack indigenous culture. So when I moved to southern Mexico and I was so exposed to the communities and the poverty and just the dynamics, I noticed, wow, even though I did hear that these problems existed, I never actually understood they existed so close for me. You know, there's so much alcoholism, there's so much um, domestic abuse. People are illiterate. They don't know how to read or write. And that's, I think that makes them powerless. Like if they don't know how yeah. to read and communicate, then there's really little chance of hope to do something. Correct. And I was thinking about what you said yes, the um, earlier this week. And even though we are quote unquote physically distanced right now through quarantine, I think we are actually closer to other people now because we have been forced to understand just how many issues plague our society right next door to us, where before we weren't physically isolated, but we were socially isolated. It was like we hung with our own little groups of, oh, I only hang with people that look like me, or I'm only surrounded with people that look like me. And now that we've seen this boom of social media interaction and news interaction and just kind of the symptoms of this pow great power imbalance that has been highlighted, we've been forced to be socially closer or socially more understanding of all that goes on around us. Our kind of blinders have been taken and off. And understanding, quote unquote, because for example, in the US there's, well, I mean, these activists that I follow, they started saying, you know, like when this pandemic started, it was portrayed as a media like, oh, COVID doesn't see race. It doesn't see ethnicity. So it's going to hit all of us the same. When in reality, of course, the people with lower social classes, people of color were going to hit the hardest. And I think they put out like some statistics, like in Michigan, there's like 73% of white people and 80% of the of the cases are of black people. Like, how is that even Yeah, it is, and it's, you know? oh gosh. I'm not sure about the statistics, that. but yes, it's so no, true. Yes, it's so true because it is highlighted that while the um, virus does not discriminate, we do. And so the majority of our essential, essential workers, what we classify as essential workers in the U.S., they're lower income, they don't get paid as much, so they don't have health insurance, they don't have access to medical care, and sadly, they are mostly women 
and ethnic minorities, which is pathetic. We have done such a bad job of being an inclusive society, of a unified society, that, okay, I shouldn't say we, we are inclusive, but we are not unified in providing adequate resources and opportunity to everyone in our society. And we're seeing it with C-Boy 19. You're right, Michigan has been decimated by the virus. And like you said, it is mostly the Black American or African American communities. Um, here in South Carolina, it's mostly our Latino community because they still have to work they still have to pay their bills and so many of them are undocumented and they're not getting our stimulus relief check. So if they don't work, their kids starve to death. So do their kids starve in America, which is ridiculous, or do they, which, cause America tries to portray this image that everything is perfect and we don't struggle with these issues, or do they go to work and expose themselves to the coronavirus? They're going to expose themselves to the coronavirus because their families need them to supply an income, which is, ah, the inequity. And because for so long we haven't talked about these issues, or in my mind, the world, not just America, we're really good at it, but other countries are also good at it, of talking around the issue. So like, oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna fix this issue. And we kind of put band-aids all the way around the like, imagine it like a floodgate. Instead of rebuilding the gate and making it secure, we put band-aids along all the crevices like this will hold, right? And then it doesn't, and we see the problem. And I think the problem is people who are holding this narrative, people who are putting this so set band-aids into the issues, it's in a way us, people who hold that privilege that don't even realize it. Yeah, and, where we don't and acknowledge we've it. We've mentioned it, like we don't acknowledge what our privilege is. Maybe we say like, oh yes, I'm privileged, I'm white, but I help people. But is it, do you really use your voice? Are you really an ally? when that's when I believe that putting these stories of women out there is so important because if there were only more stories of people who look more like the general population, not just what the media thinks you should look like or strive for, mm -hmm. then maybe we would be more unified, we would be more empathetic towards everyone. Thank you for saying that because that's completely right. If right now the general stories that are being told of empowerment sadly are the minority of those and unless we create a platform and begin telling the stories of the diversity that exists in our world and the various struggles that everyone faces, we're not going to see change. We need to, and I shouldn't say just see change, see an empowered generation. This generation has already proven to be one of the most empowered generations in history. They have already proven that they know how to utilize their voice rapidly through social media. They've already shown that they are breaking through glass ceilings and barriers that society has placed on them for so long, but they're still being held back because they do not have a diverse storyline. They have a very, I guess in literature, we would call it flat character. They're not well-developed. They're not, they're kind of single race, single socioeconomic status, and we're missing that diversity. And this Instagram account, it's run by a husband and wife. It's called The Conscious Kid, and they talk a lot about racism. Oh, that, yes. You saw it? The yes, post? I saw on your um, story, the, I think it was last night or this morning. Yeah, I just saw their account, and I saw how they're like trying to get everything back up and running. Yeah, so basically, for everyone who's listening, what they did is last week they did a post about white culture, and they defined like white, white, 
what white culture is, you know, like how, like true history, true research, all factual, no racism, no hate. And what happened was that a lot of people started reporting them saying this was hate and this was racism against white people when in reality they were only saying, and this is one of their narratives that I actually agree very well with. And they say white people are so uncomfortable when they put them into this group. For them, it's like, you cannot generalize us. We're such individuals. However, white culture generalizes every single other culture. You know, it's like the black people, the Latino people, the Hispanic people, the Asian people. So why are you so uncomfortable when we're single, singling you out in a group? Why does it bother you? That is a very poignant point. Yes, we do that. We do. And when we don't recognize the privilege we've had with that, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. Not only are we disservicing the rest of society, we're, we're disservicing ourselves for our own growth. We're disservicing our society because we're not allowing for an honest and vulnerable conversation. We're not allowing for the fact that while we may still be doing good, we can also have an inherent bias without recognizing it. And if we don't talk about it, it just gets swept under the rug. Um, so I'm a Christian and um, I go to a non-denominational, very progressive liberal church that we address the really tough issues that our society can often not be okay with addressing or we just kind of allowed the rhetoric to keep going without stopping and being like, do we actually believe that? Or is that just something that happens? And our pastor made a really good point. One of our pastors, we have kind of like cohort thing, but, um, he made a point that said you can be good and still have an inherent bias or unintentionally create harm in the words you say and the actions you take. And so if you don't address that or you don't address that gray area in your life, you're doing more harm than good. There's this great book by Leila Saad, I think I've mentioned it to you, which is called Me and White Supremacy, which is basically for white people with privilege. It's This is not a book you read, this is a book you do. And that's how it's, you know, publicized because it has writing prompts that make you reflect on your privilege and the narrative that maybe you're saying, okay, I'm not racist. I help other people, but okay, maybe there are underlying factors that I haven't thought about because I haven't gone through the struggle and I probably never will because I don't, my skin color is not something that prevents me from getting opportunities. Yes. And also, I think, too, we need to have that conversation because not only does it make us address our privilege and talk about it and think about it, it also makes us address our own stories and think about where our stories fit into the narrative. That our stories still matter. We're still allowed to hold space. But when we tell our story, we need to acknowledge the privilege that exists within it and also say that regardless of that privilege, we still felt pain. We still felt this. But I'm using my story now to tell it in a way that acknowledges that privilege, acknowledges the hurt that sometimes my own story might create for another person. And now I'm opening up the space for you also to tell your story because I know that maybe my story looks a lot different from yours. So I want to hear yours so that we can combat this arbitrary system that we've enacted for no other reason than social standard or social norm. So how do we change that? We create a dual space. And I love that. I believe that's the great power of storytelling. It's when you realize and you analyze your life. When you go back and see, okay, this is what happened to me. 
And by all means, I don't believe that you are your experiences. You're not what happened to you. You are how you overcame them. You are that person that, you know, has all these things mixed together. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just a speechless. I love this conversation. <laughs> so do I. I mean, I love how you said that because you're right. We are not our experiences in life, but our experiences inform who we become. We everything that we go through is kind of like a little mosaic piece that goes into our life that makes up the larger image of oh this is why i do this so it might inform the way we act but then if we understand our stories and we acknowledge them and we digest them we can see how they inform us and then we can also use them to grow grow in our own voice grow in our approach to things because you're right we are not our stories but it's how we grow from them that matters um that's who we are how we take those and use them to inform our perspective on life and oftentimes our perspective changes throughout our life like i said those little little tiny pieces just one small change can change the entire photo or change the entire um picture so it's very important i love that so only to wrap up this conversation because it's gone quite long <laughs> Yes, it has. I was looking at my video and I was like, oh. So what is something that you'd want to say to other people? What is something do you think they either need to hear or that you just want to get out there into the world? Yeah, so there's kind of um, two things. One is a really um, impactful quote on my life, which is by Morgan Harper Nicholas. And it says, um, oh gosh, let me get it right because I don't want to say. Okay, so it says, may you never sink under the weight of those who tried to tie you down by the shore. For you are called to the depth of the ocean. You were called to more. And to me, that quote is so important because I think so often we allow the narratives that others place on us to control our path in life, to control our voice, to control how, like, how far we think we can go. And ah, we shouldn't do that. I did that for so long. And your story matters. Your voice matters. And when you find what's passionate, which I recommend everyone should begin a journey of finding what they're truly passionate about because that's where you'll impact change in your life and in the world. Um, when you find that thing that just sets your soul on fire, go after it with everything you have because you're not the narrative that someone else has placed on your life. You are not your experiences. You are not the things that have happened to you, but you are a unique individual whose voice and whose story has a space and it matters. Um, and I just want everyone to understand that, that their story has such weight. Um, the second thing is a bit more of a different quote, but it's called Always More. And it was started by Audrey Roloff. Um, and it stems from a kind of biblical place, but I think it applies to those, whether or not um, they're believers or have any sort of religious um, connection. But it means that there's always more within you. There's always more love, grace, compassion, empathy that you can possess and that you can give away. Um, so yeah, I just hope people are able to hold on to that. That's so nice. I love that one. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, yeah, so <laughs> it's something that I super care about and that I really hope inspires others. It's something that I myself have wrote on my wrist multiple times where you just get into that funk that you can't seem to get out of. So I hope it's inspiring for them. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, for having the time, and I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for sharing part of your story, too. Thank you. And for doing this incredible work you do about storytelling the stories of other women. 
Thank you. I am super passionate about it and I love doing it. So I guess I'm grateful to have the chance to talk about it. So thank you.